0: Is everybody here? Yeah. Please pull your hand up if you're not here. <laughs> okay, dokie. <okay. laughs> you're done early. Okay. If you're done, the task has been done, the path has been completed, the holy life has been lived, there's not much point in giving a talk. <laughs> now that idea of what is what it means to be done. I'm sure I've probably mentioned this already, but that time that uh, one of the big monks in Thailand, Ajahn, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, was building his hall. At the start of the range retreat, he sent all the builders home, wanted some peace and quiet in his monastery. And so uh, when people came to say, when is your hall going to be finished? And he would say, it is finished. And then he said, what do you mean? No glass in the windows, no cover on the roof, bits of wood and cement all over the place. Are you going to leave it like this? And Ajahn Buddha Dasar replied, Sir, what's done is finished. And then he went off to meditate. That's the only time he gets some time off. The problem with that story though, is that when I told it there was a couple of teenage kids listening and then their parents, the teenage kids, came to see me on Sunday to complain. They said, why? He said, well our kids were listening to what you said, what's done is finished. And then on Saturday night, and they went out to go to a party and, and I told my kids, have you kept your promise to finish your homework first of all? And my kid replied, just as Ajahn Brahm said, Daddy, what's done is finished. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So you've got to be a bit careful with what's done and what's finished. But otherwise, if you want to make everything perfect, you never have any rest whatsoever. So there comes a time when you've got it good enough and then you can go and take a rest. Sorry? It's what started? No, it's finished. <laughs> Finish the talk. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> no. Then <laughs> the reminds about completing the task and always having to complete things. It's nice to complete things. But nevertheless, sometimes you just cannot be done. So it just reminded me. Because uh, when the retreat is over, one of the um, dhanas I'm going to be doing after the katina is this uh, Burmese lady, you know, in memory of her mother who passed away, and uh, she once told me she was an IT expert, and being an IT expert, you know, she was had her own little company, and she got the uh, the job. She did a good quote to redo. The website of the Perth Cemeteries Board. So all the cemeteries here in Perth, I think nearly all of them, they're all run by just one government agency, the Perth Cemeteries Board. And so she went to the head office, which was in Karakatta Cemetery. You know, it's just um, those people who live in Perth, you know where that is. And one thing about that cemetery. They have this really big hospital, uh, Charlie Gardner's Hospital. And if you go in some of the rooms in Charlie Gardner's Hospital, and that, there's a big building, so they have nice windows which overlook the cemetery. And I thought, that's not very helpful, the patients <laughs> there. <laughs> they look out the window and they can see the graveyard. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> anyway, so. She was doing all of the, the stuff in the Perth cemeteries board in the office. But she was traditional Bur- uh, Burmese Buddhist and really worried about ghosts. She was paranoid about ghosts. So she made a point that she'd never be the last person in the office. She'd always leave before everybody else. You know, she was just on a contract there. But what happened, of course, whatever you're afraid of, it's amazing how often that happens. It's almost like you think it's going to happen, and it does. If you don't think it's going to happen, you just have a positive attitude. These things hardly ever happen. But anyway, Friday afternoon, she would finished uh, what she was meant to do. All that was needed was to write out the report and print it. And she was so close to finishing the report that when the last lady left the office, she thought, oh, it doesn't matter, it's still light, it's only about 10 more minutes and I can finish the report off. And you know by the way I'm talking that something's going to (laughs) happen. And it did. It's not lying, it is truth, This is not a, a joke. So, She checked the report, it was all okay to print. She pressed the print button. And as you do, you go over to the printer to make sure everything's okay. And she was checking the pages as they came out from the printer. And in the middle of her report, one page came out, which was not what she typed. It was an image, a very clear image, of one of the tombstones in the cemetery. You know, the old tombstone, the stone t- they have over in, in uh, the West, old tombstone with a name on it. She never printed that, but it came out right in the middle of her report. And what did she do? Ah! <laughs> and ran out the building, leaving all the doors open, went straight into her car and sped uh, to her home, which is in South Perth. She had the idea, if you can cross the river, then the ghost can't follow you. I know I've heard that in one of Robbie Burns' poems. i do not, sure, not sure where she got that from. But anyway, when she crossed the river, went to you know, what we call the south of the river, into South Perth, she escaped. And of course, when she went back to work on Monday morning, she went there, all the people in the office said, what did you do? all the doors were left open for the weekend and your stuff was all a mess all over the place, what happened? And when she told them, when when I did the printing, this page came out of a tombstone. I freaked out and ran out as well. And actually then they said, over the weekend in that office, often things like that happen. When the workers are away, the spirits will play. In the, <laughs> in, in the head office of the uh, Perth cemeteries board over in Karakutta, that's a true story. So I told her, look next time that happens or before that happens, it doesn't matter if you've only got 10 more minutes work to do, what's done is finished, <laughs> get out. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with the talk tonight today. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, so for the talk today, there was these two meditators who lived together. And uh, the guy was named Sam and his partner was called Vi. <coughs> Their surnames was Sam Atta and Vi Pasana. And they <laughs> and they had two dogs. Now, some of you may have heard this story before, but I always add something to it, improve it. Stories are meant to grow. <laughs> and so Sam and Phi had two dogs. One was called Anna, Parnasati, <laughs> and the other one was simply called Metta. Metta the dog and Anna Pana the dog. And so, one afternoon after lunch, they decided to go for a walk up Meditation Mountain. Now they all went up there for different ideas, different uh, reasons. Sam Atta went up there because it was so peaceful on Meditation Mountain. In fact, the, you know, at the top it was incredibly still, nothing moved up on top of Meditation Mountain. Vi, you know, she had, you know, she was an editor of a of a magazine. So she took a very, very um, complicated. Was it Canon camera? Okay, and to be able to take photographs, because up on the top of Meditation Mountain, oh, you could see everything forever. Such amazing views up in Meditation Mountain. And the two dogs. I always think sometimes dogs are much wiser than people. They just went up there for fun, just for the exercise. They just enjoyed going. So, Metta and Anapana, they just went up there for for joy. So, as they were walking up, when they got halfway up Meditation Mountain, Anapana, you could hardly see her. She was vanishing and disappearing. Metta, the dog, Oh, I was getting so happy. You know what occurs when dogs get happy? They start wagging their tail like it's going to sort of fall off. And Sam was enjoying the incredible peace up there. Oh, it was so still and hardly anything moved. Except for Anapana's, uh, except for Metta's tail. And his Wi-Fi was taking these amazing insight shots of everything around. But you know, even halfway up, no, no, I won't say that. I say when they got to the top of the mountain, the very peak of a meditation mountain, Anapana had vanished. She had disappeared. The breath was not to be perceived at all. Metta, oh, she was glowing. And almost like crying with incredible bliss on top of Meditation Mountain. And Sam, oh he was so incredibly still. And Vi, when she got her camera out and took a photo, that was just oh, that was like she should get a not put it surprise, what do you get for the best photos? National Ge- National Geographic Prize, amazing shots of everything, and even though Via took these amazing shots, she could also feel the peace, incredible stillness up there, and she could also enjoy the bliss, just like little Meta the dog, and even Meta the dog, sometimes she just looked out there and just saw the incredible views but she could also experience the stillness and peace as well. And the same as Sam. Sam was so calm but he had a pair of eyes. He could also see you know, the right views and also enjoy the bliss of, you know, unconditioned peace and love. And the reason I say that story, Anapana just disappears before you get into those deep meditations. The reason I tell those stories was because you cannot separate stillness, insight and bliss. And sometimes I mention bliss, sometimes I mention unconditional love. You know there's hardly any difference between the two of them. It's one of the reasons why when I say unconditioned loving kindness, mentioned already, to explain it as my father said, the door of my heart is fully open no matter what. Comes in or goes out. That's like a sense of true love. It always gives a sense of bliss and amazing energy You don't have to strive for anything. You don't have to get rid of anything. You just leave the door open. And if you've got a wonderful mind in there, only beautiful things will come in. So I think you now can guess the subject of the talk today. It's supposed to be what sometimes people ask, where's the place of insight in the type of meditation which uh, I teach on these retreats? which I still claim is just how the Buddha taught. And where it comes in is you cannot separate the stillness and the insight. First of all, that insight may come up, not come up but has to be used even when you start meditating. The insight into how you can look after your body to make sure it's not so tired, that's ready for meditation, as best you possibly can. I often tell people who come to say meditate at those city centers, they said your meditation doesn't start when I sort of ring a bell or say okay now let's close your eyes and let's start meditating. That has started beforehand. You cannot expect to be sitting around cups of coffee and tea and chatting about this and talking about that, and then suddenly go into the room and sit down and get into jhana. Its the preparation is important. And you soon understand what type of preparation you need to get into some nice deep meditations. And that is where the insight comes up. to make sure before you come in here, You know, for meditation. You can even like walk slowly through your walking meditation as you come in this hall to actually to let go of all those other business which you have. You you know, I found that things don't go wrong, you know, if you uh, let go of all those other stuff and make meditation the highest priority because sometimes, you know, that's what you're here for. You're here for, to develop your meditation, not just sort of to solve other problems. And I, I don't know if any of you have managed to find the secret garden yet. Well, some of you are nodding, say, so you have. I won't tell you where it is, otherwise it's not secret. <laughs> there is a, a Bodhi tree planted close by, and that was in memory of this Thai lady, Wani Nhat, who you knows, she died of cancer. But I do remember when she came on one of these retreats. But her problem was that she had this very high responsible job over uh, in uh, social care. She said her job, responsibility, was to make the final decision on what children would be taken away from their mothers or fathers to save them from abuse. It's a very difficult job to do. You know, sometimes the parents may be drug addicts and dealers, but then the children still love them. You know, how far should you go to take the children from their mum? And so it was a very, very difficult job. And sometimes she had to try and find innovative solutions. So she told me on the first interview, this was just here in Perth and she said that she arrived late in the middle of the night simply because she had to tie up the loose ends. But she can't complete those loose ends, there's always some more things to decide. So she did say, okay this is good enough, what's done is finished and come on the retreat. And of course she was tired the first couple of days. But she was a good meditator in that she didn't think of those problems. She knew how to let them down. She needed this break. This was a holiday. So let that holiday happen. And then she had one of the interviews in the middle of the retreat. She came up to me and said, a weird thing happens that she was getting into some nice, peaceful meditation, and on one particular peaceful meditation, all these solutions arrived about the problems she had to find the you know, solutions for. And she said they were really amazing solutions, she didn't think about them, they just came up. And that's how insight works, it comes up by itself when it's ready. And then all she did was go to her room, write down those solutions, forget about them and then carry on with her meditation. Those are the solutions which she's going to implement when she goes back to work once the retreat is over. I've seen that happen so many times. If you want to find a solution to problems, especially really difficult ones, if you keep thinking about them, you just think in the old ways. You can't get deep insights into the solutions to worldly problems. But that's what she managed to do. And as a result of that, you know, she didn't disturb her meditation, her mind was really peaceful and clear and all these solutions came up. And that is common. And even one of the extremes of that was this uh, physicist Brian Josephson got a Nobel Prize some years ago. for. Understanding and well, we can't say discovering because he was a theoretical physicist. Um, quantum tunneling. Basically, imagine a mountain. There's no energy you know, to get over that mountain. It's too high. But you can actually borrow energy and pay it back later, and that's how you can tunnel through these impossible barriers. And of course, a lot of people said that cannot be done. And he battled, he was argued against by another uh, Nobel laureate. And eventually Brian won. It was proved that what he suggested actually worked. That's where he got his Nobel Prize. And the reason I mention that, he was the first Welsh person to get a Nobel Prize in Physics. And it became the basis for um, supercomputing, which actually runs at close to zero Kelvin degrees and he said he got that insight after meditating. Not the Buddhist meditation, he was doing the TM meditation, but still his mind was so peaceful and still it became powerful and he penetrated something which gave him a Nobel Prize. So, after coming on these retreats, I expect some of you to get a Nobel Prize. (laughs) How many people have got Nobel Prizes in Singapore? Oh, come on. (laughs) So that's actually how things work. I know, I I don't mind saying these, these weird things. I know of the Buddhist community. It's not that big a community in Western Australia. But in every year, when the kids at high school do their university entrance examinations, they call it the, I actually don't know what they call it, but the year 12, they sometimes call it. And the one, the kid who comes top of all the kids in the state gets awarded this Beasley Medal. And two of those winners you know, are members of our Buddhist society, they come here and the third she just got the second prize, she just missed the top prize by a little bit sometimes I wonder is it because of the meditation we teach here is it because the confidence we give but it's certainly above average achievements just in academia So. There is something to this. This is the worldly insights which come up, and so this is why that we do develop those insights, and especially just before you meditate, how is your mind? If it is too tight, it's very difficult. We haven't got those meditation cushions yet where you can just press a button and a latte comes out <laughs> or a flat white, or uh, what else do they? Or cocoa, but the cocoa doesn't. Does cocoa give you a boost of energy? Okay. Well, guess, you know, or, or a cup of tea. But but anyway, you can always have something before you come in here. It you know, just gives you a little boost of energy. You know, but certainly try not to talk, especially if it's talk about things which stir the mind up before uh, the meditation. That's my job, to do the talking. So So anyway, what that means is preparation. And number two is when you sit down. Fidget. Fidget until you can find the most comfortable posture. When you do find that most comfortable posture, enjoy it. It's a weird thing, I think I have mentioned it already, that when I do a body sweeping exercise, just to make sure that everything is in this good position, when I get to the end of that body sweeping and I look at my whole body, and I've looked after every part of it as best I possibly can, Now I look at the whole body, it is relaxed, but it also feels pleasurable. It's delightful to be relaxed. And Sometimes I've been a monk 48 years now. Only twice I've been in a a bath, a hot bath. You know what you used to use in UK? These little bath, these not little ones, baths with hot water in, and you soak your bones in it <laughs> and the rest of your body as well. <laughs> I remember one of those times that when I went up to to Bhutan. You know, when I went to Bhutan, we were raising money for the nun's monastery. I think it was a nun's monastery. And then I'd auctioned many things. You know you know that you auction teddy bears and goodness knows what else. But then when I decided we'd auction so many things, let's try something different. And you know, In the meditation, you get insight, you can be uh, intuitive and different. So I decided I'll auction myself. And what did that actually mean? I said, whoever wins this auction can take me any place in the world and for, I think, two weeks or 10 days, and then as long as they return me in the same or better condition that they found me, then that's okay. (laughs) I really thought they'd take me off to do a retreat somewhere. They always ask me, can you do a retreat here, do a retreat there? But anyway, the fellow who, who won was an Indonesian man, many of you have seen him before, that's E1, and he took me to Bhutan. And part of going to Bhutan was to go up this mountain called Tiger's Nest, to Tiger's Nest, an old, um, I don't know why they called it Tiger's Nest, because there's no tigers over in Bhutan in any way. If it's too cold for them, uh, they don't get anything to eat up there, so they'd be in the, the lowlands, not the highlands. But anyway, going up to Tiger's Nest, it's not that much of a climb, but the air is so thin up there, so high that it's hard to breathe. And so that is what makes it very hard. Somebody took one of these energy bars, you know these energy bars which are sealed? And they showed it to me at the bottom of the mountain. And when we got to the top, it expanded like a balloon because the the air pressure inside, outside, allowed it to expand, it was quite impressive. And of course that was a long journey, many people, including Burr, she's coming tomorrow, she said Ajahn Brahm please don't go up, you know you'll die, (laughs) you're not the same as other people, you're carrying more weight. (laughs) And that really encouraged me. I said, okay, you can just talk like that, I'm going up. So I, I got up to the top. Many people thought I wouldn't make it. They didn't know me that, much, that well. So they afterwards, I was the first one up there, the fastest. Uh, they call me the Kung Fu monk. <laughs> after Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> but anyway, after that, and you know, I thought it was fair enough. After that really heavy exercise, to have us soak my, I think the bones weren't aching, but anyway, I soaked them anyway, in a bath for half an hour. <laughs> but anyway, afterwards, your body feels so relaxed and at ease. It does feel pleasurable, and there's something which I did notice when I started doing the bodily relaxations at the beginning of the meditation. How? that gives this meditation this very very positive energy and then I recognize this is a lovely thing to do. As a monk, we don't get much pleasure in our body, but that's actually the food, yeah that's usually pleasurable. But just being able just to just relax the body so much, it feels great. And it also as I mentioned relieves you from many sicknesses. So when you can relax the body, The insight just comes from your experience. When you have the joy, the delight in a relaxed body, relaxation goes even more. And it also means you're training your mind to actually to look forward to meditation. Meditation is very different than going to the dentist. The dentist is somewhere you have to go. This is somewhere where you look forward to going to. Ah, meditation, meditation retreat, yay! Because you notice how it's enjoyable, and that's the inside which comes up. Meditation should be enjoyable. That's why I mentioned that in the very beginning. The Dhamma, no. Said, they were to Sutta, I forget exactly now, but where the king went to see the Buddha and remarked about how the meditators were always so peaceful in the Jetavana, the Jetagrove Monastery, and always so happy. The Buddha said, yes, that's what you can expect. If the insights and the peace come, the smile gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's one of the reasons why a monk I think many of you may have met or seen, that's Ajahn Gunha. You know who I'm talking about, Ajahn Gunha. He actually spent a rains retreat here many years ago. And Ajahn Gunha was the monk who, in the jungles of Thailand, he encountered a king cobra. All the monks were meditating in the forest. And this cobra came up and they heard it. And they opened their eyes and they saw it. And the cobra lifted its head in front of Ajahn Ganha, opened its hood, in front of Ajahn Ganha's nose. You know that story, don't you? Yeah. So anyway, what did I... What would you do? Please never think of running. You know, I saw many big snakes in Thailand, and they could run much faster than I could. Fortunately, the ones I saw always ran in the opposite direction. (laughs) (laughs) Not towards me, away from me. But it was actually amazing just how fast they can run. And also when you see those big snakes swim as well, you know, in the lakes, that's really scary. There's no escape for me. But anyway... When this big snake came, <laughs> Ajaan Ganga lifted up his, his hand and patted the snake on the head. Thank you for coming to visit me. Remember what I said about that anger-eating monster? and the, In that story, and the, the Empress said, thank you for coming to visit me. And when you're like that, It takes people's anger or fear and it diminishes it. And so after a while they just can't do anything to you. And so this little snake is very happy being patted on the head by this very holy monk. Would you be happy to be patted on the head by Ajahn Gunha? I think you would. (laughs) Maybe you were a king cobra in the past life. (laughs) But anyhow. So that was a famous story about him. But when he came to stay here, that was many years ago, he wasn't famous yet, Uh, but then, when he came here, we had our local mayor, the mayor of Serpentine, Jaradal Shire, came to check us out. You know, who are these monks? What are they doing here? And at that time, we had just submitted are the plans for the main hall over in Bodhinyana Monastery, which I hope you've gone to see and meditate in. It's a powerful place and of course now it's free for you. We used it yesterday afternoon, but the monks and the nuns, if ever you want to meditate, try that out. If you haven't been able to meditate well yet, try it out in the main hall of Bodhinyana Monastery. You're welcome there. And you can get like a chair from the back or Get enough cushions in the cupboard, you're welcome to sit in there. And it's just so oh, incredibly powerful. I mean, Kaz, you know, you were spending the reins over there. Was it powerful, that whole? Yes. Yeah. And I almost used to be spending it exclusively just by myself. And I could sit right full of that, put Yeah. I I used being humble, but it has got a lot of power there, for sure. See but anyway, we just had the plans there, and the mayor came to check us out, and the mayor was dressed in the suits, and he 's a farmer, a local farmer. he was dressed in a suit, but he was uh, had more gravitas than I did. If <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. He had more fat. And so, you know, his poor jacket, you know, I was wondering when that button was going to pop off. It was really tight. And Ajahn Gunha got to him before I did. Ajahn Gunha walked over to him with a big smile on Ajahn Gunha's face. He started rubbing the (laughs) mare's belly. (laughs) I don't think he'd ever seen anything so fat in Thailand. (laughs) He started rubbing the mare's belly. That, that really scared me. <laughs> that is not part of, you know, the customs in Australia. <laughs> it was the country totally inappropriate. <laughs> I thought, but I was wrong. Because <laughs> then you saw the mayor, he started smiling and giggling. <laughs> it, it reminded me of a little baby, you know, being cardinal by his mum and giggling. <laughs> and of course we got our planning permission and everything, and he became a really good friend of this monastery. (laughs) (laughs) And he always remembered, the smiling one, couldn't speak any English, but you know, could pat the belly (laughs) and give loving kindness. So the purpose of that story is if you ever want planning permission for some project (laughs) over in Singapore, find the mayor and (laughs) rub his tummy. (laughs) Well, just the kindness was the most important point. And the reason I was talking about Ajahn Ganha is because every time he didn't like giving talks, not even in Thai. So but when he was here we had to get him to give a talk, something about meditation, and eventually he gave in. And what he said, Ajahn Ganha's way of meditating. When you breathe in, breathe in. Sabha when you breathe out, sabai. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and the word sabai is one of those words in Thai you hear all the time. Right? So sabai dee—it's a greeting. Then basically, may you be uh, at ease and happy and just content, relaxed. And then and what—that's what he was saying. His main teaching and only teaching in meditation: just breathe in, just the happiest, most joyful, the peaceful breath you can possibly breathe in, oh that's nice, and breathe out the same, oh that's gorgeous, you'd be surprised how powerful that is, because then you want to do it again, and again, and your meditation on the breath becomes so easy, when it's beautiful. It's delightful. And that means that is how you get the focus. You don't get the focus by holding the the breath. You're not going anywhere, breath. You can do that. I've tried that using your willpower. I'm going to watch every breath. you get tired out very quickly, there's no joy in there and after a while you you can't maintain that. Or you can maintain when you're just blissing out Ah, that was a very sabai breath. Breathing in sabai, breathing out sabai. I can do that all day. Sometimes that's what you do. So that's using some insight. The inside is how can you maintain awareness of the breath with lots of mindfulness so you don't fall asleep, you don't get distracted, you don't want to think about anything else because you're having too good a time just you know, watching the breath. I don't know if in Singapore if you've got any like your partner or something and maybe it's a guy who likes watching the football. I'm sure there are, okay. If you have, have you ever noticed, you know, your your partner may be looking at the TV or something and watching the football and then you say to them dinner's ready, they're not ignoring you, they just can't hear you. It's a state of samadhi, like soccer, <laughs> they're, they're so engrossed, you know, in that or in a movie, if you're watching a movie and it's so engrossed in the movie and the doorbell goes and you can't hear it. It's because you're enjoying what you're doing and that gives you the stability. In meditation, it's whatever you're aware of, that holds you. You don't hold the object, it holds you. And hopefully that will happen sometimes. It was a beautiful meditation. Oh, this is nice. Oh, this is really nice. Oh. And you don't wanna take your your attention away from it. It holds you because of the delight which comes. And I gave one trick about the insight into delight and how to hold it and maintain it. I gave that yesterday, last night. When you want something more, you can't enjoy what you already have. This is a very beautiful uh, place here in Jhana Grove. And many of you after lunch or any time, I've seen you and well done, just have a cup of juice or cocoa or whatever you like and you just sit out there and just, as I say, watch the trees grow, watch the sun go down over the Indian Ocean or just watch the trees and watch the birds, and sometimes, you know, I watch a little, um, like the other day, you know, the blue tongue lizards, and they never harm you, but they're just very beautiful, and you realize you don't have to rush, you don't have to pay for this, nothing's going to, ex- uh, you're part of nature, just like the little lizards, and you can just enjoy their company. And that can give you so much delight and happiness. There's no rush. You have no appointments. Yes, some of you have the appointments for the interviews, but it doesn't matter. If you miss your interview, it doesn't matter. So no pressure on any of you. You don't have to attain anything. I am not going to give you, uh, what's it called? our marks at the end of this retreat. Now sometimes uh, we give kids marks at school, grades, grade A, B, C, D, E, F. And sometimes to be a bit rebellious and to give these kids a bit of a boost, I said, yeah, you get grades A, B, C, D, E, F. Did your teachers ever explain what they mean? What does F mean? Fantastic. E means excellent. D means delightful. C means charming. B means could do better. A means arrogant. (laughs) (laughs) So on this retreat, do you deserve an F or an A? On this retreat so far. What that does it takes away some of the tightness and pressure and suffering of meditation. And that means the insight helps your meditation. Who gets the A? Is it your body? Is it your Vedana, your feelings? Is it your perception? Is it your Sankara? Is it your consciousness gets an A? Which one does it? When you look at these things, Buddhist principles, nothing does. So in the end it's just some of these things which we have to go through at school but doesn't mean very much. Many of the people got kicked out of university. Einstein, Steve Jobs, uh, Michael Dell, who else? Yeah, that's why right. That's uh, what's his name again? That was the Facebook. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg. And because they got kicked out of university or they left by themselves, they became billionaires. So if you've got any kids at university, tell them, come on, <laughs> get out. Mummy and daddy need a few billion dollars. <coughs> Sorry, I, people tell me off about that. Anyway, as long as the kid's enjoying their education, that's again the most important thing. The grades are just what we have to do. But anyway, because of that, you tell yourself that in meditation what we're really aspiring for is things like freedom. A freedom from having to achieve things. Freedom from having to want to be somewhere where we're not. Instead happy to be here. And to emphasize that point about those insights that please tell me if I told a story during this retreat, I've told this many times before about the story of the monk who went to teach in prison and the prisoners was it on this retreat? Yeah? Okay. And the prisoners, you know, they liked him. It wasn't me, another prisoner. And they said, can you stay a little bit longer? We found out what you can eat in the evening. Some tea and some cheese and some chocolate. So we prepared that for you. And so they served their mug they loved you know, with a bit of tea and they were asking him, what's it like at your monastery? what do you monks do? For example, what time do you get up in the morning? And the monk replied, oh, four, four o'clock. But it is optional. You can always get up earlier if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> but not later. And then what do you do? You know, can you watch the late night movie? Said, so No, we don't have TV in monastery. We get up and meditate or chant. Same old child like you every morning. <laughs> it's much easier to learn then. <laughs> if it's only one simple chant. So yeah, we do have some chanting or some meditation. And then you have your breakfast. Now I must admit that maybe I've let things slip a little bit, but the breakfast which you gave me this morning, oh, it was so delicious and so much. But in the old days, when this month was... Um, going to the prison, all we'd have is a cup like this with three reetabix in, some milk, and that was it. That was my breakfast, every day. And they said, wow, that's terrible. In prison, you can get noodles, you can get bacon and eggs, you can get um, pancakes and waffles, you can get baked beans. I don't know if they do get them, yeah, but baked beans. You can get such a choice. So now we only get three wheat a mix of a bit of milk. Oh, that's terrible. But then what do you do afterwards? You know, and he asked, Can you play any sport? I think I mentioned that already. I said, No, we thought of that. At least I thought of that. Because when we first came over here, you know, we we're a bit of like outsiders, Buddhist monks. So we thought, Why don't we try and just. You now maybe for, form like a, like a football team. Over here they call it AFL, Australian Football League. And you know, we have the, the monks and, you know, uh, and the nuns <laughs> playing football. <laughs> and the lay people. And we challenge the, the, the Christians. <laughs> it's great for interfaith harmony. We meet each other and just do things together. And I thought about that, but then what stopped me going forward, I thought, well, as Buddhists, we would have to play according to Buddhist precepts and Buddhist principles. So number one, if you had the ball, let it go. (laughs) Don't be attached. (laughs) And the last thing you want to do is kick a goal and upset the opposition. <laughs> so in a Buddhist football team, here, here's the ball, you take it. <laughs> so we never win a match. But so anyway, said, so no, we don't play any sports at all. We meditate in the mornings, or we do chores. And please excuse me, if you see the monks coming up in the morning and you see them um, doing some chores around here, I did tell her we have to start preparing some of the places for the Katina ceremony. So anyway, that's where if you see them, we try to be quiet but they have to do some work. And then so we do work. What about your lunch? Yeah, you need to see us have lunch, we eat in one bowl and sometimes, sometimes the bowl does get mixed up. I'm usually very careful when I put the food in the bowl but then when somebody takes it upstairs from me, a bit of <laughs> And that's where you got these amazing combinations of food. I say while well, we're innovators here, we're on the forefront of modern cuisine. <laughs> I remember once having strawberry ice cream on top of spaghetti bolognese. what do you think? You say, have you ever had it? (laughs) Of course, that's one of the insights you get, why do we have so many expectations? Oh, it must be disgusting, when you've never eaten it. I have, so I know what I'm talking about, it is disgusting. (laughs) But poor prisoners said, "Oh, that's terrible. in a prison we have a, even in solitary confinement, you know, when you've been naughty or something, they give you a tray with separate compartments and say, so "What do you do after lunch? You know can you uh, again watch the TV or play games?" say, "No, oh, more meditation. What about in the evening? What time's dinner? No dinner." And they say, no dinner? Why? You know why the monks don't eat in the, in the afternoon or evening? Look well, what happens when I just eat one part of the day, if I did the evening as well, I'd explode. <laughs> 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 no, is you enough in the morning times? And they said, well then what do you do? In the evening can you sort of you know, have games? Play Monopoly or play poker or anything? No, the same reason is because we just don't want to win. Have you ever been a winner? It puts more pressure on you to win again next time than, you know, the destroying the confidence of the losers. I love to be a loser because then I'm free. I don't have to. You know, when I first gave talks, I thought, please, 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 may nobody like my talk, may they find it very boring, may they find the jokes offensive so that I never need to go to give a talk ever again. That I could stay in my cave, and I actually could retire. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Anyway, so no, we just meditate. So what time do you go to bed? Bed? We don't have beds. Not Over here we do, but over in... You've been in my cave. Have you got a bed in my cave? I sleep on the floor. And sleeping on the floor is by far the preferred option. Because you know you've got so much space you can roll over here and roll over there. <laughs> 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 you may ever feel afraid of, sort of falling out of bed. I don't know how you actually do that, sleeping in the bed all the time. Aren't you afraid of not falling out? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I so, said, no, that's what we do. And the prisoners were just actually so amazed. And they thought, wow, prisons in Australia are far more comfortable than that. You know, all the comforts that they have inside prison. So one of them actually forgot where he was and said to their friend, the monk, that's terrible in your monastery. Why don't you come in here and stay with us instead? (laughs) He got an invitation to superior accommodation and lifestyle inside the top security prison in Australia. And they had a point there, the prisoners. And of course, the most important point is What makes a prison? What makes a monastery? Not the walls, not the time you have to go up, not the food, not the clothes you have to wear. What makes a prison? Because there's some place you don't want to be. No matter how comfortable, if you don't want to be there, you're in jail. If you're in a relationship, you're having trouble with you, don't want to be there. Your relationship is a prison. If you're in a, a job you hate, you don't like going to work in the morning, then your job is a prison for you. How do you, if you're in a body which is really sick and hurting, you've got some cancer or some other disease eating you away, do you want to be there? You don't want to be in your sick body, your body becomes your prison. So how do you escape from the prisons of life? Do you have to heal your body so it's nice and fit and painless again? Do you have to go and change your partner? Honestly, all partners are the same. They start off you know, with lots of hopes, then afterwards, after a time, you say, here we go again. So I always say stick with the one you have because it's cheaper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is true. It looks a bit younger and more fashionable but the engine inside is the same. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, (coughs) where was I going with this? Oh yeah, so... If, you're happy, if you are happy to be, so you don't actually try and change your partner, change even your job, or change even your, the disease you have to cure it. Instead so care for it. And then when you're happy to be here, you're free. So people in prison, if you're happy to be there, it's a nice little rest for a while. Wonderful. Then you are free, you feel free. You go outside and there's that freedom. If you don't want to be here, you aim to get somewhere else, then you're in jail. And the same thing, the insight which happens in meditation. Look, do you want to be have a nimmitta? If you don't want to be where you are, but you want to have a nimitha, that's called being in jail. Remember this very rich man said, you know, he was a millionaire and he said, I really owe it to my wife that I became a millionaire. Before I got married I was a billionaire. (laughs) Excuse me, that's a joke. That's my trouble, I laugh at my own jokes. That's why I tell them I enjoy them, no one else doesn't. So anyway, you have the wonderful wisdom. If you want happiness, sense of freedom inside of you, be happy to be where you are, whatever stage of meditation that is. I'm restless. I don't know mind why you want to be restless, but I'm happy you're restless. Thank you mind. If that's what you want to do, nice mind off you go and go and be restless wherever you want to be, if you want to fall asleep, have a good night's sleep mind, be kind to your mind, when you're happy to be here, you find that sloth and torpid and restlessness can't handle that, restlessness is trying to get somewhere else, when you're happy to be here, restlessness vanishes, it's like the anger eating demon, welcome restlessness. Welcome, Sloth and Topper. Nice to meet you again. And I don't say much about doubt, but I will just say this last story about doubt. The Buddha said it's like being lost in the desert. And this one fellow was lost in the desert for days, and he couldn't stand up anymore. He was just so weak, so dehydrated, heat-stroke, everything. and He was just crawling in the sand and he thought maybe in a few hours that's what he's got left to live. And in the distance he saw on the horizon something shimmering, and he thought he was just dreaming this, but it looked like there's a person there. And as he sort of tried to focus with the last bit of his energy, that person on the horizon, it actually was a person, it started coming closer towards him. And as he looked and focused his eyes, his eyes were very tired, you know, he's almost dead, and he thought I must be imagining this because what it looked like was a person who was wearing furs in the middle of the desert, and it was actually standing on what looked like a sled, and in front of the sled were these 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 uh, dogs pulling the sled. And he thought, this is, this is impossible, it must be the last vision before I pass away, my brain's gone. But as it come closer, he could hear the dogs barking. And he realized this was one of those Inuits, you know, from North America with the dog sleds. And he knew it was an, an imagination when the dog came right up to him and started licking him. And the, the driver of this dog sled, this Inuit, Eskimo used to call him, they said, Had some water, they have some water. So, have some water. And the man was just so relieved, he said, At last, I'm saved. I've been wandering around this desert for for days, totally lost. And the dog sled driver said, And you think you're lost? (laughs) 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 Sadhu, sadhu, (laughs) sadhu! Please excuse me for those silly jokes. Anyway, now we have the interviews for those who want an interview.